I don't think it's actually cool to collect the hottest, coolest monocultural thing out there. Like I could give a fuck about owning a, can I say fuck? Yeah, who's gonna stop you? I could give a hoot about owning a cause painting. I don't care about Supreme. I don't, I'm not into consumption. Welcome back, episode 12. We missed a week in between there because every guest we had lined up got COVID, unfortunately. Sorry about that. The world's still a little bit crazy. That said, this episode is with an artist who I got to know during the COVID lockdowns, and that's also around the time that he flipped the art business model in a really unique way. Today, we welcome Matty Moe. His real name is Matt Monahan, but he's better known as the most famous artist. There's this quote that always gets incorrectly credited to Andy Warhol, and it reads, Art is anything you can get away with. And that's kind of a metaphor for Matt's whole career. He's this mix of fine art and performance art and social media curation. And he has this track record of turning everything into a viral moment. So if you Google his name, you'll see his photo among some of the greatest names in art history, which is where that title, The Most Famous Artist, comes from. And it's part of the reason he's been so successful cutting through the noise on social media. So some of his work you might recognize includes the creation of a fake private jet, that he allowed everyone to sort of come in and take selfies and pretend they were on a real private jet, and that's all over Instagram. Polka Dot Wall in LA, which is also all over Instagram, and he turned an entire city block neon pink, which basically shut down that whole neighborhood with people trying to get selfies. He got to Web3 early, and he turned a group of painters and illustrators into NFT artists, and was able to share that wealth within his community that he created, which is known as the most famous artist community. And that's all real people, it's not a Discord, he showed them how to monetize, how to sell art in a bunch of different mediums, and it worked. He knows how to use art to make people happy and to make them pissed off. And he knows how to make money doing it, which is the end goal for way more big name artists than most people would lead themselves to believe. And now he's taking on a really ambitious project of building an entire community in a town from scratch in New Mexico. All that and way more in this episode. And as always, as a disclaimer, nothing on the episode should be considered financial advice. You shouldn't make any decision based on any of the information presented here. And with that, episode 12 of The Best Money I Ever Spent, presented by Riley, with someone who art dealer Stefan Simkowitz called an interesting person who makes garbage art. The incredibly talented and still wildly underrated Maddie Moe, aka the most famous artist. Maddie Mo, what's up, man? It's been a, it's been a minute. I haven't seen you in a while. I'm glad to see you with that beautiful mustache and uh, and a really serious cowboy hat. For anyone listening, he's dressed. Maddie Mo right now is dressed like the most famous artist, no question. What's up, man? How you been? I've uh, never been better, actually, and I'm uh, appreciative to be here to talk to you and your audience. And um, yeah, I dress the part: handlebar mustache and a cowboy hat out here in Tucumcari, New Mexico, living on an art ranch. Living the dream, man. Living the dream. So, I mean, I want to. You're you're one of the most interesting people that that I've ever met, no question. And you got a great story. I want to get to a little bit uh, of the in between of what's going on now. I want to start a little bit of background just for everybody listening. So, you know, you've done a lot. You got a lot of titles. So, if you go by by the Wikipedia page of Maddie Mo, it's 
It's Matt Monahan, Los Angeles-based contemporary artist and marketing entrepreneur is what it will say. How do you describe yourself when someone asks like the inevitable, what do you do question? When they say, who is the most famous artist? What does it mean? What do you say? I mean, my, my joke response is I do as little as possible. Uh, I, I think in time, I've just realized that like, sometimes the best way to solve problems is to go for a long walk. And sometimes the way to get the most accomplished is to be as bored as possible. Um, and so right now, I mean, Duchamp, Marcel Duchamp, an artist I aspire to be like who invented the Dada movement, said he was a breather, spent most of his time breathing. I aspire to be something like that. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want the title billionaire. I don't want the title artist. I don't want the title uh, successful. I just want to exist and have like, have a have like feel like pretty good about like every choice I've made, at least to the best of my ability, and and make sure that all the people I'm interacting with are equally happy. That's a that caught me off guard, man. That's a perfect that's a perfect way to explain what happiness is too, a little bit, I think. And you've so to, to give a little bit more background, you've done all these these a lot of big installations along the way. Everything you've done always always seems and feels big. And it always has, you know, it's always well received, but it's polarizing too. And it's something that I think you've been able to sort of carve your own way and work in your own path. And to your point, be bored, find something, turn into something, and then everybody kind of sees it. So when you did that, that 2019 uh, interview, the uh, NBC news piece, they were trying to catch you in like these little kind of like gotcha moments, I think. And it, it turned at the end, the anchor was kind of on your side and taking selfies in front of some of your work. And it was this whole sort of, you know, full circle moment. When thinking about like the title of the most famous artist, when did that become real when did it go from being an idea into kind of a way to make money into what it is now where you have that sort of flexibility to do what you want and try something new was there a specific moment or was there something that kind of just was always in the cards and it kind of naturally got to that point yeah i i'll, I'll answer your first question well and then i'll, I'll go into this because i kind of give you a cheeky response so I, I i have had the title of marketer i have had the title of ceo i have had the title of entrepreneur um and i gave myself the title of artist um, to answer your question related to like when I became, when I thought I was an artist or when I, when I thought I lived up to the, the title, which I gave myself the most famous artist because I'm a marketer and entrepreneur and kind of understand how SEO works um, and building brands. Um, it was, it was when people started recognizing me and saying that they liked my work and I couldn't have predicted that. And my work has changed a lot over the course of my career. Um, I've had different career paths. Like, and I, I can't say that like when I was a tech entrepreneur, even if I was a successful tech entrepreneur, people weren't coming up to me going like, I really like your work. Most people that are aspiring to be like a tech entrepreneur or a successful investment banker are interested in like the money and power that that person has rather than the like the way that that person's work made them feel. And so that's the reward for doing the work of becoming the most famous artist. Um, but I, I will say that like I emerged as the most, if I was to reinvent myself today, I don't think I would want to be the most famous artist. I was the most famous artist during an era when like social media was peaking, um, headlines were dominating social media. Uh, any all news outlets were doing anything they could to get something clickbaity in the newsfeed to drive monetization for their websites. And the most famous artist was like a confluence of all those factors. Um, 
nowadays, like I haven't done a stunt since the monolith project at the end of 2022 or 2020. So it's been almost two years, maybe like 18 months where I haven't even thought about making a headline worthy project, which is the thing that I became known for as the most famous artist. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Cause I said in the intro, I was talking about how I got more familiar with you and we kind of met during that, that lockdown period of COVID and the, what I knew about you before, which are these huge installations and it's things like, you know, fire experience and private jet experience and, you know, pink block in LA and the polka dot wall and all these things that are these massive installations. And I want to touch on some of that stuff, but when we first reconnected and we did a zoom and you had what is now the open three community, which was the, the web, which was the most famous artist community at that point, it was a bunch of illustrators and designers and these artists who were in these kind of like, you know, figure drawing classes and they were figuring out ways to market and sell their art. I have a bunch of that art on my wall from Rianne and a bunch of other people that were in the, that were in your group that are in your community. It felt like somebody who kind of found themselves in a way where it was now like changing what was those big installations, big social media and what would be considered kind of like real art by the community that doesn't know what, what, what to think about art, where it's not just about polarization. Was there an inflection point? Because you are a good artist too. You're an actor. You're, you're an artist who's not just here for installations and marketing. I've seen your work. I know that you, you can sketch, you can draw, you have sort of the ability to sort of make what the regular person would consider real art. Was there a moment where you're like, I'm done with this shit. I can't do it anymore. I'm not going to just do things that get news and get millions of clicks and get all these likes. Or was it just part of the progression of you as a person, as an artist to get to that point? You know what it was is that the it's like life happened. Um, so my practice, which from 2017 to 2020 was firing on all cylinders. I was like traveling all over the world, doing installations. People knew who I was. I was getting invited to the fancy like galas and the parties and stuff like that. Um, the fine art world wasn't really paying attention to me because there's there's not really a place for stunt artists as I became in order to rise to a level of like um, credibility to be called the most famous artist in the art world. The art world doesn't really have stunt artists. Banksy's maybe a stunt artist, but there's conceptual artists and there's sculptural artists and there's street artists, but I didn't fit any of those boxes. Um, so you know, I, I thought I was on this path where I was like, okay, I'm this stunt artist and I'm going to continue to make large selfie friendly installations because people are just going to keep taking selfies of themselves and telling the story of how great their lives are on social media. I'm going to continue to make headline worthy projects because that's providing me distribution through mainstream media so that I get more collectors. And I'm going to continue to sell the artwork that I was making, which was largely going to flea markets, buying canvases for 20 bucks doing some kind of contemporary data-driven thing on top of it that felt familiar and selling it for one to $5,000 to collectors. And that model worked for me really well. And then COVID happened. And if, if we think about like what happened during COVID, the headlines were dominated by all sorts of crazy shit that I couldn't match, even in my wildest imagination. People weren't going outside and taking selfies or going to experiential events. So that was out the door. Flea markets closed, so I couldn't even buy the source material for my art practice. So I had to start over at the beginning of the pandemic. I had to start over because my practice was no longer viable, but also because my revenue dried up and I was putting everything I had into making my art practice grow. I think one of the hard things about a physical art practice is in order to scale it, you have to make bigger work and sell it for more money, which means a bigger studio, which means more material costs. 
And it's a cash flow issue. Like artists fundamentally have a cash flow issue, especially when dealing with gallerists who take 50% of the nut and often hold money for like net 60, net 90. Um, so I found myself in a place where I was like, well, shit, as an entrepreneur, my startup is no longer working. The market conditions have fundamentally changed. So I had to reinvent myself. And at the time, I was looking at guys like Greg Eisenberg and Jack Butcher, and they were like building communities online. And, you know, the fundamental tenet of building a good community online is like aligning around a shared set of values um, and having having like a shared goal and having like shared resources. And so when I thought about like my goals um, and my values, my values are the institution sucks in the art world because they didn't accept me as a stunt artist and I didn't go to Yale and I'm not sucking the toes of the right curator. So therefore I don't get shown anywhere. So I had to make it on my own. My values are art is not a zero sum game. You know, the art institution has, has kind of programmed artists to think that they're competing against each other because there's a finite spot, number of spots at Yale's MFA program. There's a finite number of galleries to show at. There's a finite number of, of art fairs. There's a finite number of collectors. And so artists actually feel in competition with each other. And I have a more of an abundance mindset because I didn't go through the institution. I wasn't indoctrinated into that kind of like mindset. So I'm like, well, actually let me open source my practice. Let me share all of the success I've had and how I've done it in hopes that other people are willing to have the same type of mindset because I mean, the old adage, a, a rising tide lifts all ships. And so I entered this, this, I, I, I was interested in community. I was interested in a particular mindset and I had a particular set of skills, making stunts, making headlines, making selfie friendly stuff to widen my distribution independent of the institutional gatekeepers. And so at one point at the beginning of 2020, I decided, you know what my goal is, it's to help 10,000 artists create uh, $100,000 a year because that was a big unlock for me. It was like, okay, I made $100,000 a year as an artist selling my art. That is absolutely crazy. I can wake up when I want to go to bed when I want to have nobody to answer to except for myself. And if I help 10,000 artists make $100,000 a year off art, I can, as an artist, create a billion dollar impact on cultural production independent of institutional gatekeepers. And that felt like the ultimate FU to the people who were not willing to accept me as my, my most famous artist person. So that was the, that was the inception. COVID was the catalyst, the, the con like just kind of sleuthing around Twitter and finding out about community building and the principles of that was the inception of what I was calling TMFA community. And then I just started outreach and I started providing resources and utility and, um, and, and kind of programming for other artists who felt the same way. And we ended up building a thousand person artist community, global artist community over the course of 2020 um, and into 2021. You, you, you dropped a bunch of gems in that, in that response. At the end, you talked a little bit about, you used this word utility, which is this like uh, very polarizing word right now in a bunch of different spaces. Do you, I look back at some of the work that you did when it was considered stunt art and something like, you know, the block of pink houses in LA, what is, what is something like that in terms of like the team and the money that goes into it? What type of, what type of project is that in terms of actual resources needed to make it work? Do you put a number on that? If it was, if it was a dollar figure or if it was something that was like, you know, tangible that you could say it cost this much to get that done. Do you have an idea in your mind what that actually was? Yeah. So the private jet cost me about 150 grand because 
uh, I was in an accelerator sponsored by Snapchat and they funded a company to create selfie friendly experiences. And I spent 150 grand trying to build a private jet and it was a huge flop and a waste of everyone's time and, and money, but it was a cool art project. The pink houses was more of like a bootstrap thing. Like one thing I had to do as an artist was try to squeeze the, every last dollar out of uh, my, or every last impression out of my resources. If I was truly to become the most famous artist. And so the pink house was, two air sprayers, a hundred gallons of paint, six or seven volunteers and seven hours of time and a pizza party. And that created like hundreds of millions of impressions. And so to me, the ROI on that was incredible because immediately following the pink house, I launched an experiential and mural agency because all these brands wanted to talk to me and they're like, well, you sure squeezed a lot of impressions out of those dollars. Can you do it for us? Um, so it, it, I had to operate. I, something I say often is like um, constraints are actually one of the most, most powerful creative tools. I was constrained in resources, so I had to become creative with how I used my resources. Yeah, it, forces, it definitely forces you to be way more innovative and way more creative with what you have. And, and the outcomes are typically better too. It, and, you know, a lot of, the, you, you mentioned a lot of um, projects that, hit for every project that hit there were like 10 that didn't and no one knows about them no one cares about them and that's okay and that's another thing is like just picking your head up and or p at least picking my head up and and kind of like focusing on the bigger vision which was i wanted to prove to the world i could become a famous artist i was already a tech entrepreneur i was already a marketer i want to try something extremely hard that i had no business doing to prove to myself that it wasn't just that I got into Stanford and I lucked into becoming a tech entrepreneur and making a bunch of money. So, so that's it. I mean, you just hit, you just went full circle on, on, on the question that I had as a follow-up. You led me into it. When you talk about utility and you talk about like this democratization of art and the fact that it is such a closed door and you have to have the relationships and, and to your point, everything you said, it's not, people don't realize how many great artists have zero hits. They'll, no one will ever hear of them. They'll never sell a piece of art. When you look at all the stuff you did in the past, the stuff that might have been stunts and it might have been about impressions and, you know, you have millions of people that enjoy it and they take it and make it their own. And if they just put it on Instagram or tell everyone else about it, it's their art at that point. It's their thing. And then you have, you know, a thousand people in in the most famous artist community who you were really sort of, you know, helping show them how to monetize art, potentially make money off art. It's to make one hundred thousand dollars off art. That's a big round number. It's insane. If you love if you're just waking up and you're able to sort of draw or paint all day and make, you know, six figures, that's absolutely, that's such a rare sort of, you know, such a small, small amount of people do that. What do you look at as more of like democratizing, democratizing art in a real way? Is it getting, you know, a hundred million impressions and massive reach and this thing takes on a whole life of its own in sort of like a row of pink houses in Los Angeles? Or do you look at it as sort of working with those thousand people to allow them to make money off their art as democratizing the space. Which one do you, if you had to balance the two, which one do you look at as saying like, this is the goal of art? I think it's redefining what art means. The, the art institution defines art as a financial instrument that has to be super rare or like ultra exclusive or constrained supply. It has to have a particular provenance, da, 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 da. And it's very snobby. Like democratizing art is kind of redefining amongst the public what art even means and to me that's kind of like it's to, art to me is using the tools of your time 
to tell the stories of your time and then contextualizing it in art past. And I said that during my, my other interview, and I don't know where that came from, but I heard it one time. And I've heard really you say funny. it too, yeah. Um, and so, you know, to be an artist, you have to understand the people who became, came before you and why they made the art they made so that you can defend what you're doing. Um, but it, it doesn't need, like decorative art, which is shit upon by the fine art world, is art to me. And to be able to say to an artist, it's okay you're selling tchotchkes. If you're selling $100,000 of tchotchkes on Etsy, that's fucking awesome because you're your own person. You're your own entrepreneur. You don't need to be in a museum to be an artist. You don't need to be in a gallery to be an artist. You don't need to be making uh, boxes that go on walls with frames around them with paint on them to be an artist. You just need to make things and sell things and build community around you in your practice. And more than anything, it's about practice. It's about waking up every day and doing something. So like bodybuilders are artists to a certain degree. Chefs, artists to a certain degree. A lot of us are drones that go to a nine to five and we are not artists because we're taking orders and we're not developing a practice on our own terms. That, I mean, how much do you think now with that, with art in that context, how much of that, how much that's driven by, by fear of missing out right now? How much of the market, what the, the, the sort of the access to art is driven by that FOMO? Somebody else sees it, it becomes a big thing. They want to have it. And whether that's like fitness or it's, you know, being like being a chef became so cool over the course of the last like decade, let's call it when it was a secondary practice and it wasn't looked at as art for so long. How much of that? Is how much of everything is driven by fear, but by that FOMO to you? Because I know a lot of what you built early on in those sort of stunt artworks was so driven by the hits, were so driven by FOMO and had to get there to get this picture, to get that selfie. Do you look at that as a as like the fuel for some of this, or is that sort of irrelevant at this point? Do you think it's not my fuel anymore? It certainly was fuel early on. I think we as a society have gotten a little bit more mature and realized that. Um, we, we've, we've redefined happiness and success. And, you know, I don't think it's actually cool to collect the hottest, coolest monocultural thing out there. Like I could give a fuck about owning a, can I say fuck? I yeah, could give, who's a, gonna stop you? I could give a hoot about owning a cause painting. I don't care about Supreme. I don't, I'm not into consumption. And that's kind of antithetical to the idea of making and selling things to people. But, um, you know, FOMO is one way to, like, I think plebeians and basic people FOMO into consumption. I think sophisticated individuals that are autonomous in their own right, have a vision, no matter what their resources, find things both physically and digitally that appeal to their sensibilities, their aesthetic sensibilities, their cultural sensibilities, their community sensibilities. And those to me are true connoisseurs or true collectors. And those are the people that are driving the types of artists that I think belong in the community I'm trying to build. So, I mean, and that, that leads to the real, the real question, the, the, where I want to get to with you is, is kind of, how do we get to now? So to, I gave a little bit of intro but building a town in New Mexico while also getting back into Web3 and NFT creation, like I'm on, I'm on Instagram a few months ago and um, you're saying like you retired from Web3 and I feel like you were there early and you had a community that was kind of building around it early and you were going back to basics and getting off social media. And now I'm seeing the pictures and videos of you like 
over the last three months, like doing construction and building a studio and it's a ranch and there's a greenhouse and you're growing your own food. And it looks like there's a movie theater and this coffee house and all these, all, all these things that are going on. How many acres are we talking about in New Mexico and what's the intended outcome? Is this the next step for the community for you or is this the next step for you as an artist? So there, there's a, there's a guy called Balaji who uh, is a big thinker in the web three space. And he's talking about like the creation of um, like, digital communities and how they turn into like new types of nation states. They're not, they're not locked by geography. They're, they're kind of brought together by ideologies. Um, often they LARP in a uh, digital space before they find physical space in which they can actually build societies that they care to, to interact with. Um, to me, Tucum carry is going to become that space where artists have uh space and time to create things, uh, an audience to sell them to, uh, affordable living, that kind of stuff. Um, if I, if I go back though, like I am still very much in web three, the thing you probably saw, is I said, I'm out of web three, which means I was going to stop making and selling NFTs as the most famous artist. Um, mm. I kind of think that ship has sailed. That was a cool part of my career. I have done a lot of, uh, anonymous nft projects like a lot <laughs> like 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 a disgusting amount of nft projects um that are afforded by the pseudonymity of the blockchain which is pretty incredible um i am now running as ceo a venture funded web3 business focused on building like the nft operating system going back to my brand days when i was building for facebook and google ad tech systems um, some of which exited and some of which failed um, and taking my experience in NFTs and saying, okay, so while we're in this bear market for the next few years, let's build the guts and the infrastructure that become the next billion dollar companies in 2024, 2025. And I'm like buckled in and building that every single day. And it, the tweet you saw was probably me selling all my ETH and crypto at the top. It was. Like, I'm hedged right now because I'm working on Web3 building in Web3, earning ETH in Web3, but I personally own no crypto anymore. Do you, do you think that, do you think the price of ETH is directly tied and correlated to the popularity of Web3 or of NFTs to the masses? Or do you think that it doesn't matter? You think right now, as we record this, ETH's got a little pop, but... It's it's the macro. Like I've, I've been in crypto since 2012, 2013, and I've seen these cycles and this cycle is way different than other cycles in that there's a lot of things that are um pointing downward like hyperinflation and um war in ukraine and the like there's just so many crazy things going on that i i don't have confidence in really risky asset classes right now not to say i don't believe in eth long term and not to say i don't believe in crypto long term but i'm by no means going to hold things that are going to fall another 50 percent just because i'm like a maxi i'm just a practical rational investor Listen, the, uh, practicality never hurt anybody. There are times when it's time to build and sometimes you don't want to be worried about waking up and checking a bunch of crypto accounts first thing in the morning to make sure that your, your net worth is still relative to what you want to build. You know what I mean? There's nothing wrong with that. So I, ca I cashed out of crypto. I'm still building in crypto. Um, you know, and then by the time this podcast is out, I'll have launched open3.com, which is going to be um, its first iteration is going to be a curated uh platform of free to mint 
generative artwork projects by the community of artists I've already created. We're going to build a catalog of hundreds of thousands of, if not millions of free to mint NFTs to bring in the new wave of collectors. You know, the things I don't like about NFTs, and I'll get back to the town and Tukin Carry and all that stuff, but we're on this NFT thing. The thing I don't like about NFTs and its current instantiation is that the collectors are primarily interested in speculating on future value of collectibles. They're not buying art. That said, NFTs are an incredibly powerful tool for artists because one, they allow for an artist to create infinite inventory without additional cost or marginal cost. So for example, I can have thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of artworks available for sale without the storage cost, the shipping cost, the material cost, all that stuff. So that story I told earlier around scaling my career, that was a problem for me because of cash flow fails to exist in NFTs. It ceased to exist in NFTs. The second thing that's really powerful about NFTs is I'm making money while I sleep. Never before as an artist have I been able to make money through a product or through IP that just keeps on earning as secondary transactions happen. So in that respect, NFTs are really powerful. I'm trying to figure out how to help artists and IP holders make the right moves right now in the bear market so that they set themselves up to have a large collector base of Web3 enthusiasts who are interested in the utility rather than the speculation of participating in communities that are gated by tokens. Um, blah, 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 blah. I'm boring everyone. I'll move on. Um, <laughs> no, you're right. You know what, though? You, you, the, what you're building, though, because this, this is really what we're, where I want to get to, talking about New Mexico and talking about everything you're working on. You're doing this mix of, of art, dev, and kind of like city planning right now, I would say. Those things all work together to you right now, or is it something where you want to give your attention to one because it leads to the next? Is that all part of this, this future plan for you and for the group, that the community that you're building right now? Yeah, they all work together. So I'm going to make a ton of money off Web3, which is then going to allow me to build a town where an entire community of people can come together. And then I don't need to make stunts or headlines to actually be an extremely famous, impactful artist. Like Marfa, Texas is, is the analog here. Um, you know, Donald Judd moved out there. Have you, are you familiar with Marfa, Texas? Yeah, I didn't want to, I didn't want to make the comparison. Because I like you, I consider you a friend, and I, I don't want to put you in a spot where you're like, "Nah, fuck Marfa." That's that's been a joke. That's just for photo photo ops only. You know what I mean? Marfa is the snooty version of what I'm trying to build. Um, it's a great example of how art can become a catalyst for people to drive many hours out of their way to look at art uh, and and bring economic development to like an otherwise desolate place. Um, and the people that move there as a consequence are actually pretty interesting. Yeah, that's that's it's it's got its own little town. And for anyone listening that doesn't know, so Marfa, Texas is probably three or four hours of a drive on an empty road outside of the closest town in Texas. And the biggest it's a it's an art town. There's a bunch of installations that are permanent. There's some that are that are temporary, and there's a small town and a hotel that are built around it. The big one you would recognize is a, a fake Prada store that's right on the side of the highway, which is really a photo op. And and like Beyonce took a picture there. A few years back that brought in a new round of new people that wanted to get there but it's a trip for selfies for a lot of people i think and i looked at what you're doing as something that's the opposite that's why i didn't bring it up was the idea that you bring people there and they're building with you to make this town livable and not a tourist attraction for selfies you know what i mean yeah and and i think selfie culture is over it's more about like interest like i the big vision, like if I could, if I could fast forward 20, 30 years in the future and I make a billion dollars and I get to do whatever I want, 
I would reinvent America's cultural highway route 66, where I have artists that are native to artists that are practicing in art forms that are native to the environments along route 66 from Chicago to LA, uh, revitalizing towns that were otherwise decimated by e-commerce and globalization. So Tucum carries this fascinating story where it was a railroad town in the 19, early 1900s. Um, it was booming. Union Pacific Railroad, a bunch of those folks built a ton of infrastructure out here because it was like one of the, the hubs as people were going west. Um, that then there was like a, a little bit of like, um, you know, corporate, like corporate struggle in between different railroads and Tucumcari ceased being a railroad town, but Route 66 flowed right through it. And up until the 80s, uh, you had to drive through Tucumcari to go along like the road from Chicago to Los Angeles. So they saw tons of foot traffic, tons of automobile traffic. So they have tons of gas stations along Route 66 and like something like 1500 active or 1500 hotel rooms on these like drive-in motels and all this cool infrastructure. Um, but in the eighties, the 40, the freeway that, that kind of the main interstate built a bypass around Tucumcari and the town just started to die. And that's like a part of globalization. And so all this infrastructure exists here, cool old motels, cool old gas stations, like a lot of culture and history, but everyone's driving on I-40 and they have no reason to stop anymore. And so my thinking is the 16,000 people every day that drive on I-40 past Tucumcari need an incentive to stop, which in turn builds economic activity, which makes the lives better of everybody that lives here. And a lot of the people that live here have lived here for generations and haven't really been outside of it, largely because they lack economic opportunity. Um, and so there's, there's this like altruistic kind of like quasi, you could call it gentrification, but it's also like, how could we use art and culture to like revitalize infrastructure that was decimated by globalization? And that's like a big question I'm asking myself. And that, that's like big answer, big solution territory, but I am, it's hard to argue with the success that you've had to this point, taking, taking what is a small idea and turning into something massive or something that gets a ton of reach. And right now we live in this world where that type of reach and that type of impressions, Marfa as the example, it brings traffic, it brings people, it brings culture. There's no reason it wouldn't, it wouldn't work in my opinion. Do you see it? And this is really like getting toward the, the, the question I should have asked first. Do you ever see a space where money for you doesn't matter relative to art? Does it require hitting a certain number? Or is it something for you where you're like, I'm just gonna do this, if it works, it works. I'm not even thinking about money because it feels like We've talked a lot about money during this this conversation, and obviously that's like part of what we do at Rally, and it's part of the, the the name of the show, literally. But what do you look at as sort of the breaking point where you like art for the sake of art versus art for the sake of money? Does that ever happen for you or no? Money doesn't matter to me anymore, and it's not because I'm the richest I've ever been, because but because I found like um, I found enough interesting stuff to do that I and a, and a faith that when I need the resources to get bigger and scale bigger, they'll be there. Like, I'm not worried about money right now. I don't have all the money in the world. There are projects that I want to accomplish that are going to take more resources that I don't have. But it's right now, I'm just putting one fit in front of the other, excited about a big vision. That's, that's the right answer. That's it. That's I can't, I can't argue with that answer, dude. That's what it is. You know, I, I have to make money to like do things. And like, yeah, I want to, I want to buy other more things and I want more land and I want to, 
I want to, I want like a cool houseboat for the lake nearby. Like, but, uh, those things aren't things I'm longing for that are distracting me from the bigger vision. Well, too, like your, your, I want more land is the equivalent of somebody else who's thinking about this more as discretionary and saying, I want to go on that crazy trip. or I want to be on a private jet or all the things that I think earlier in your career, you were building off like what you knew that that discretionary and that consumerism was going to lend itself to. Now you're in a different place. So it's like a different, me- a different thought process that goes with it, right? Yeah, I, I guess for the listeners, like if you're thinking about making money so you can go on a private jet and go hang out in Ibiza for the summer, take it from a guy who spent millions of dollars in his 20s because he had it and didn't know what to do with it. It wasn't that fulfilling because I didn't have any purpose. And I didn't go to, I could have been in Ibiza and Greece all summer long and I've been there and I've been sending recommendations to my friends, but I'm here in Tucumcari living on my ranch, building shit, because that's actually more fulfilling. Using resources to fulfill big dreams is more fulfilling to me than chasing the the latest flavor. Right. I got to That's the, uh, that's a perfect period on the sentence. I think, uh, I got to get out there. I want everyone to get out there at a certain point. That said, typically we end with like a couple of quick questions that go through like, uh, everything we just talked about quick. So I got, I got a couple for you first of which is out of everything you've done outside of just who can carry, what do you, what do you look at and you say, I'm most proud of this or the one that you could stand on and say, like, this is the one that, uh, that made me the happiest. I've like repaired relationships that I fucked up in my twenties. That's a winning answer. I'm not even going to ask any more on that. That's perfect. So right before all the the new version of of Maddie Mo that I'm talking to right now, you did a Lexus ad that was uh, it aired during like the NFL playoffs. Like big TV commercial was around nonstop. There was a longer version with like an interview of you. You played this artist character. Um, Long term, would you rather be making money on art or celebrity? I feel like your, your opinion probably has changed about this over the course of the last few years. So celebrity is so stupid. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> like I would not, I really don't want to be well known. I want to share ideas and I want my ideas to be well known, but I don't want anyone to see, know who I am. I don't want to, I don't, I don't dress fancy because I don't want anyone to know what I got in my bank account. I, I'm just trying to like fly below the radar because I got to taste celebrity. And because I got to spend money, I realized I don't want anymore. And I, I don't know that I would have arrived here had I not had those previous experiences. So I feel tremendously grateful for that. Um, and I'm not sure that I could have skipped those previous experiences to get here. But celebrity is not all it's cracked up to be. And kind of like spending your discretionary income on the thing that seems cool because of FOMO is not all it's cracked up to be. And that's so obvious, but I truly feel it in my soul. Hmm. So this is, this is a, that was a little bit of a leading question is the last one, but what is the best money you ever spent? What would you say it is if you had to put a, you had to, you had to pin it to a wall right now and say, this was it. Yeah. I, I tweeted, I tweeted this. I, I tweet and delete things all the time. So whatever, but I tweeted um, the best decision I ever made was moving to a small town in the desert. Uh, the reason being is like, I don't have much anxiety. I know where I get my food. I know where I get my water. I know I have no bills. Um, because my life isn't that expensive and all I have is space and time and peace. And so to me, that was the best money I ever spent. Matt is a killer answer. I gotta leave it there. Dude, thank you so much for, for coming on here. I, I listening to you and having conversations and seeing what you tweet and delete 
all that has been, uh, you're on a journey that I'm, I'm a little bit envious of, but at the same time, I can't wait to see where it ends up. And I'm looking forward to getting out there, dude. Thank you so much for coming on. Likewise, brother, you're doing great things and I appreciate you uh, taking the time. Thanks, man. episode 12 with Maddie Moe, aka the most famous artist, who by all measurable database standards is one of the most famous artists in the world, which makes no sense to a lot of people, but he gets people to care. And if art is meant to trigger emotion, then Maddie Moe is certainly the poster child for real art. And he also made a bunch of money doing it. So this week on Rally, the artist most people credit with connecting that viral loop to the process and the product of art, Andy Warhol, is back on Rally. Friday, July 29th at noon Eastern time, we'll be IPOing a signed and stamped Warhol Campbell soup print. That's one of the pieces that really tied the commercialization of art and commerce and the uniformity of Warhol's legacy all together. He did 32 canvases for all 32 flavors of Campbell's soup in 1962. And the originals were actually first exhibited on shelves like a grocery store aisle. And a little known fact about the origins of those silk screens, Warhol drank Campbell's soup for lunch for 20 years straight. That's a weird fact, but it's true. The offering goes live on Friday, a $65,000 IPO, $10 per share. Finally, as a reminder, do not listen to me or anyone for investment advice. Always do your own research and be sure to read the disclaimers on rallyroad.com before making any investment. All investments involve risk. This is definitely no different and past performance is never an indication of future performance. I'm Rob Petrozo. I'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. But until then, you can find us on RallyRD, RallyRoad.com, at Rally on Instagram, and at OnRallyRD on Twitter. Be sure to subscribe here so you don't miss anything in between. See you soon.